We're in 1 Corinthians 9, and just by way of introduction, I want to talk to you a little bit about the process of growth. Growing in Christ is an interesting journey because for different people, it takes different directions. For me, when I, when I first came to the Lord, uh, I was about 14 years old, and I would call my first stage unbridled enthusiasm. I was so excited about being a Christian and, and growing in Christ, and I was, I was like uber disciplined in my walk with the Lord. So I had my Bible studies every day. I had my, my prayer times every day. I was going out and sharing Christ with people. Every time they opened the doors of the church, I was there. I mean, I was just incredibly enthusiastic. The, the interesting thing about that time for me and by, by the way, that's a joyous time, but one of the things that kind of comes in because you don't know about the grace and love of God fully yet, Satan comes in and attacks with condemnation. And so that, that first era of my life, that first space that I went into as a Christian, I felt a lot of condemnation, like I wasn't doing enough. I wasn't dedicated enough. I wasn't I wasn't as committed as I should be, and I had way, way too many sins that were, that were holding me down. So even though I felt like I was doing good in my relationship with Christ, I wasn't doing enough. And, and I felt, quite frankly, a lot of condemnation and even a lot of depression uh, because I would be confronted with my failings, and I was frustrated with that. The other thing that happened in that time, as pride kept in, crept into that first space, I found myself judging other people who weren't quite as committed as I was. So if you weren't having your Bible studies as often as I did, oh, you're not quite as good a Christian as I am. Or if you weren't praying as much, or if you weren't coming out on Friday night to share your faith with other people, well, you kind of were not quite there. And then I came into a second phase. And I, and I would call this space a space of freedom. This was an amazing time for my life. It was when I, when I learned uh, from John 15 that Christ wanted me to abide in him, to be connected with him. And so if the, if the first space I was trying to live for Christ, the second space I was learning to live in Christ. And I discovered things like Romans chapter 8. It was an amazing discovery for me that Romans 8, 1 begins with, there is therefore now no condemnation in, for those who are in Christ Jesus. And I remember when it first hit me, I, I thought, really? God, you don't condemn me because I felt so condemned for so much of my life. And God through his word said, no, I'm, I am not condemning you now and I will never condemn you. And I learned something, that if I feel condemnation, it is not coming from God. It's either coming from the enemy of my soul, who is called the accuser of the brethren, or it's coming from my own crazy mind. Um, I learned in that, in that space about the love of Christ. And I learned something amazing, that there was nothing I could do that would make Jesus love me more and there's nothing I could do that make, would make Jesus love me less. His love for me was infinite and it was not dependent on my, my performance. And so that space was a space of freedom. It was, it was an amazing time of just learning to allow the Spirit of God to work in me. 
Interestingly enough, uh, that space also became a space where I was a little lazier because I didn't have that fear of God <laughs> moving me to have Bible studies every day and I wasn't under this pressure to earn his love and so I kind of relaxed and enjoyed the love of Christ. And whereas early in my life I felt like, oh my gosh, if I don't go to church, I'm going to go to hell and it's going to be terrible. I, I didn't feel that constraint. Oh, I've got to be in church every time the doors open. So I relaxed on my church attendance and I cut back on my Bible studies. I wasn't as disciplined and as diligent I was in that first space of life. But I enjoyed it a lot more. I enjoyed just resting in the love of Christ and, and trying to just focus on relationship rather than pushing forward to grow in him. There's something else that happens in that second space. Things that you were really condemned about early in life, you start to feel freedom about. And, and sometimes when pride creeps into that freedom, it can lead you in places that you really don't want to go. For example, the Corinthians were in this second space of life and they were, they were really proud of their freedom. And so they would, for example, they had a guy who was living with his stepmother going to the church. And they were so proud of the fact that they weren't freaked out by that sin. Hey, we're mature. This is no big deal for us. And so they, were, they let the guy continue to be a part of the church and him and his stepmother is coming, sitting together, holding hands. I mean, how weird is that? It was just kind of bizarre. And Paul sort of blasted them in 1 Corinthians. He says, you guys, you need to deal with sin that's in the church because it's like a cancer that's going to ruin the whole church. So they were overplaying this freedom thing. And then in 1 Corinthians 6, there was a guy who was mad at another brother in Christ. And he had this sense that I have rights. And because his rights were violated, he felt free to sue a brother in Christ. And Paul says, what are you guys doing? You don't sue brothers in Christ. In fact, Paul ever actually said, it's better to be defrauded. It's better to lose what you have coming to you than it is to take a lawsuit before a non-Christian judge. Then in 1 Corinthians 8, they got to this issue of meat sacrificed to idols. Now, when, when they were new Christians, the Corinthians would say, oh, we can't eat meat sacrificed to idols. That's, that's a terrible thing. We, we should never do that. Well, then they grow and they become, ah, we're mature now. We know there's no such thing as idols. We have freedom. And besides, if you knew Corinth of that day, that's where you got the best meat. It's like the best delis were at the temple. You know, the best, the best meats were, were meats that had been sacrificed to idols. And so the Corinthians were saying, well, hey, we know that there's no such thing as an idol, so we'll just go buy the meat at the meat market at the temple and we'll eat it, no problem. Now here's the problem. There were some young Corinthians who are new in their faith and they're going, what are you doing? Is it okay for me to eat? And they said, sure. And so these Corinthians who, who felt condemned were following the mature Christians and eating the meat sacrificed to idols and their faith was actually being wounded because they were doing something that they believed Jesus didn't want them to do. And so Paul in dealing with that specific thing says, you know what, I want you guys to know something. If meat sacrificed to idols, if me eating that 
is going to cause one of my younger brothers in Christ to stumble. Hey, I'm going to give it up because their faith is more important than my rights or my freedom. All right. Now, with all that in mind, we come to 1 Corinthians chapter 9. And this is kind of an interesting chapter because if you read this carefully, you're going to read a little bit of frustration in Paul. The frustration is he shouldn't even have to be dealing with it. These, these Corinthians were whacking things out as far as what the grace of God really meant. And they were taking their freedom and they were applying it to themselves and enjoying themselves. And they were criticizing Paul because Paul didn't demand his rights. And let me give you an example. If, if you went to a philosophy course in Corinth, the teacher would charge you and by charging you, he was letting you know, hey, what I'm teaching is really great. The Christian teachers in Corinth even copied this. They said, hey, there are non-Christian friends charged, so we're going to charge. So it kind of got to the idea that if your teaching is worth anything, the listeners have to pay to hear it. Well, here comes Paul. And he doesn't want to get allow anything to get in the way of them hearing the gospel. So he decides... I'm not going to charge for my teaching. I'm going to work as a tent maker in order to give you the gospel for free. And the Corinthians were actually criticizing him for doing this. They're saying, Paul, you must be a wannabe apostle. Because if you were really a cool apostle, you would charge us. So the thing that Paul was doing for them out of love, they were actually criticizing and challenging his authority to do this. So in 1 Corinthians 9, he's going to uh, kind of clarify all of this. And by the way, if you were paying attention, you, I, you notice I said there were three stages of growth. I only gave you two. We'll give you that third one at the end. So we're going to look into 1 Corinthians chapter 9. And first in verses 1 and 2, Paul is going to establish his authority as an apostle. He's going to open up in verses 1 and 2 with, two, with four questions. And these four questions, you can see the emotion in it. And let me, uh, let me give you an example. Uh, let's say um, you were saying, you know, Steve, why are you up teaching us? And I might use the Socratic method of asking you a question. I'd say, am I a teacher? And you'd say, well, yeah, I guess you are. Okay, that's why I'm teaching. But if I were mad at you and I wanted to dramatize this, I'd put this little word not in there and Am I not a teacher? And you tell, oh, I guess we stepped over the line in questioning him. And there, there's, a, there's a drama and an intensity and a, and a little bit of irritation in Paul. And you can tell it in this. All of these questions have the negative in it, even though they're expecting a positive answer. So Paul says, am I not free? Am I not an apostle? Have I not seen Jesus our Lord? Are not you my workmanship in the Lord? So these four questions are kind of building a pyramid to establish Paul's authority as an apostle. So the first one, am I not free? He's focusing on the fact that, like them, he's a follower of Jesus. So he has the same freedom in Christ that they're claiming to have. Then he goes, am I not an apostle? And the next two questions are going to establish that. The next question is, have I not seen Jesus our Lord? Now, this is an important one because if you look back to Acts 2, one of the requirements of an apostle 
was that they had to have visibly seen the risen Lord. Not anybody could just say, oh, I'm an apostle, follow me. No, you had to have actually seen Jesus Christ face to face. And so Paul is referring back to his meeting Jesus on the Damascus Road. Now we're going to pick up in the story. We're in Acts chapter 9, uh, verse 16, or verse 10. And we're going to look at Paul's, or excuse me, God's, or Jesus's uh, calling of Ananias uh, to go to Paul, or Saul at that time. Now there was a disciple at Damascus named Ananias. The Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias, and he said, here am I, Lord. By the way, that's always a good thing to say when God talks to you. If he calls you by name, you say, here am I. Okay, don't, don't give him any gruff. Don't ignore him. Don't put him on hold. You know, just respond to him. And the Lord said to him, rise and go to the street called Straight. And at the house of Judas, look for a man of Tarsus named Saul. For behold, he was praying. And he has seen in a vision a man named Ananias come in and lay his hands on him so that he might regain his sight. Ananias said, Lord, I have heard from many about this guy, how much evil he has done to your saints in Jerusalem, and how he has authority here from the chief priest to bind all who call on your name. So Ananias is no moron. He looks at Jesus and he says, whoa, wait a minute. This is the guy who's arresting all the Christians. Don't you know that? Now, that's not a great thing to say to Jesus. All right? He knows. When he tells you to do something, he, he kind of knows the situation. But Ananias is like, hey, Jesus, I need to bring you up to speed. Bad guy. Guy who is going to get me in trouble if I go to him. Jesus says this. And this is what I want you to focus on. But the Lord said to him, go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine, to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. For I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my, own, for, for the sake of my name. So Jesus appeared to Paul on the road. He was blinded. And then through Ananias, Jesus gives his call to Paul. And there's two things. There's good news and bad news. The good news is you're going to be my chosen instrument to bear my name to both Gentiles and Jews. Number two, here's the bad news, Paul. You're going to suffer greatly for my name's sake. So Paul, in this story, he referred to it three times in the book of Acts. This is a big deal that he had seen Jesus because this is what qualified him to be an apostle. Apostles were kind of a big deal in the New Testament, and the reason you know this is the fact that the requirement for every book being accepted into the New Testament was either you had to be an apostle or you had to be a close associate of, of apostle. Matthew was one of the 12. He was an apostle. Mark was a close friend of Peter, and he basically wrote under Peter's authority. Luke was a close friend of Paul, and he essentially wrote under Paul's authority, so the book of Luke and Acts. Paul, we have, who is an apostle. James was a brother of Jesus and one of the leaders of the church. Jude was one of the 12, or we're not sure he may have been an apostle of Jesus. So Paul is saying, hey, I have the right to expect your respect as an apostle of Jesus Christ. Now this sounds weird. It sounds like, Paul, what are you doing? Demanding people to respect you? Well, midway through 
the chapter, we're going to see where Paul is going with this, and it ends in a good place. So Paul's fourth question, are you not my workmanship in the Lord? And what he's doing is he's looking at the Corinthian believers and he's saying, hey, you guys, you owe your spiritual life to me. I'm the one who came to Corinth. I'm the one who shared the gospel with you. And you guys, in a sense, you are the seal of my apostleship. So this is kind of a weird chapter. Paul's a little angry with them, and he said, hey, you guys aren't giving me the respect you ought to as an apostle of Jesus Christ. And you're going, whoa, Paul, why are you demanding respect here? Well, we'll see in just a minute. So in verses 3 through 5, Paul goes on to say, not only do I have the authority of an apostle, I have the rights of an apostle. Now look at verses 3 through 5, and again, you see kind of his defensiveness and his irritation with him. This is my defense to those who examine me. So some of you are trying to put me on the witness stand. You're trying to examine me, and you're feeling like I'm not coming up to your standards. Here's my defense. Do we not have a right to eat and drink? As apostles, don't we have a right to have our basic necessities covered? Do we not have the right to take along a believing wife as do the other apostles and the and the brothers of the Lord and Cephas. So Paul is saying, look, we have the same rights that the other apostles do. Paul was single. We're pretty sure he was married before he became a believer, and either his wife left him or she died at some point. But at this point, Paul was single, Barnabas was single, and they were doing their work as two single guys going around the, the known world at that point. And Paul also goes in verse 6, and he says, I also have the right to be supported by you. Now here's what he says. Or is it only Barnabas and I who have no right to refrain from working for a living? You guys, do, do you think we don't have the right to expect you to pay us? He's going to give some examples of how this works. Who serves as a soldier at his own expense? Now, if, if the army drafted me, I was almost drafted one time, I was not interested in being drafted, but have I, had I been drafted, I would have had the expectation that they would give me a gun, give me a uniform, and at least give me the equipment that I needed to serve as a soldier. Paul says nobody serves as a soldier at their own expense. They don't buy their own stuff and then work as a soldier. Then he goes on and gives another example. Who plants a vineyard without eating any of its fruit? Do you work as a farmer and you don't even get the opportunity to eat the food that you're producing? No, that doesn't make any sense. Or who tends a flock without getting some of the milk? So these normal examples of life, Paul is setting up that the person who is working has a right to expect produce from what he's doing. In verse 8, do I say these things on a human authority? Does not the law say the same? For it is written in the law of Moses, you shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain. Deuteronomy 25.4 says, look, if you've got an ox, you've got it tied to a little circular path and he's stomping on the grain and breaking up the grain so that when you throw it into the air, the chaff gets separated. Deuteronomy 25.4 says, take care of your ox. Don't muzzle him. Let him occasionally dip down and eat some of the grain that he's treading. So it was very good. God was pro-ox. It was watching out for the oxen. But he was not only watching out for the oxen. So Paul goes on. 
Is it for the oxen that God is concerned? Yes, but there's more. Does he not certainly speak for our sake? It was written for our sake, because the plowman should plow in hope, and the thresher should thresh in hope of sharing the crop. If we have sown spiritual things among you, is it too much that we reap material things from you? So Paul is directly applying it to the ministry now. Leaders in the church have the right to expect that people should support them in their ministry so that they can give their time completely to their ministry. No problem there. If others share this rightful claim on you, do not we even more. So Paul is saying, you're paying other teachers. Don't we have the right to expect? Now, it sounds like Paul's angling for a paycheck, doesn't it? Sounds like Paul is saying, hey, here's my social security number. Let's start the automatic deposits into my account and we can get this thing taken care of. Paul is going to share. That's not what he has in mind at all. At all. He says, nevertheless, verse 12, we have not made use of this right, but we endure anything rather than put an obstacle in the way of the gospel of Christ. Do you not know that those who are employed in the temple service get their food from the temple and those who serve at the altar share in the sacrificial offerings? In the same way, the Lord commanded those who proclaim the gospel should get their living by the gospel. So now Paul is going to get down to the basic truth of what this entire chapter is about. Paul has been spending the whole first part of the chapter saying, you should respect me as an apostle, I have rights as an apostle, and I have the right to expect you guys to pay me. The key verse to help you understand this whole chapter is verse 12, and let me read it again for you. If others shared this rightful claim on you, do not we even more. Nevertheless, we have not made use of this right. We had the right, Paul says, because we're genuine apostles, but we have not made use of the right. Why? Because we endure anything rather than put an obstacle in the way of the gospel of Christ. Now, let's say you're starting a church, and you don't have anybody, you only have three people coming to your church as you're getting started, and you're saying, hey, I need about 60000 a year, so you guys, let's divvy that up by three, and why don't you support me? Well, you're not going to have a really great thrust of the church advancing at that point. Uh, Connie and I, when we started the church, I worked as a warehouse manager for the first two years. Why did I do that? I didn't want to wait till we got enough people to support me to start the church. So we were able to get started a little quicker that way. So Paul is not building a case for a paycheck. He's actually beginning to teach an important principle. And this leads us to this third stage, this third space of growth. Remember the first space is this unbridled enthusiasm. You're, you're living for Christ. You're passionate about doing things. You're feeling like a slave because you got to do these things in order to get him to love you. Then you go to stage two and you move from being a slave to a son. And you realize, oh, the Holy Spirit is in me. He's given me the spirit of adoption. I'm a child of God. Jesus loves me. I don't have to do all of this stuff to earn my love. So you enter into the space where you're a son and you're experiencing the love of Christ. And then you come to stage three. Stage three is when you realize that life is bigger than just being about you. 
you realize that your rights are not as important as the gospel of Jesus Christ. Are you with me? And so what you do is you have your freedom in Christ. John 15, Romans 8, Jesus loves me, I've got it, nothing can take that away. But you willingly surrender your freedom in Christ so that you will become more effective for the gospel. You lay aside your rights so that your rights won't get in the way of the furtherance of the gospel. So if stage one was living for Christ, stage two is living in Christ, stage three is Christ living through you. And this is where a whole bunch of verses are going to come to mean something to you that maybe you've never understood before. Let me share them with you. Philippians 1.21 For me to live is Christ and to die is gain. How cool is that? Paul says for me to live equals Christ. That is the sum total of what my life is about. It's not about me anymore. It's not about Steve Larson's dreams, his hopes, his desires, his ambitions. Those died. What is my life now? My life is Christ. It's his dreams, his hopes, his desires, his agenda. For me to live is Christ. And when you live that way, guess what? When you die, you win. It's a pretty cool way to live. Galatians 2.20. Paul says, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. So Christ is now actually moving through you to make a difference in the lives of other people. It's not you making the difference. It's Christ through you making the difference in the lives of other people. Here's my favorite, 2 Corinthians 5, 14 and 15. I hope you're writing these down because these are golden scriptures. He says, for the love of Christ controls us. That word control, sometimes you, it, it feels like you're holding something back. I've got to control my kids. They're going crazy. Okay. That's not this word for control. A picture, if you remember when you're in elementary school in a play and you're behind the curtain and you didn't want to go out on the stage because you were scared stiff, and that teacher lovingly puts her hand in the back of your back and she shoves you out onto the stage. Whoa, now you're out there. Now you got no choice but to do it. That's the word controls. The love of Christ is a kick in the rear. It's a shove in the back. It's a movement forward. And so Paul is saying, for the love of Christ moves me forward in my life. You got that? Now, he finishes. Because we have concluded this, that one died for all, Jesus died for everyone, therefore all have died. When you came to Christ, we died with Christ. That's what Romans 6 is teaching us. And he died for all, now here's the key, that those who live, that's us, we're alive today, might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. So here's the crazy thing. Christ died for us to set us free from our sins. He loves us. We have total freedom. Why did he do that? 
so that I could move forward with my own agenda? No. He died for us so that we who live would no longer live for ourselves, but for him. When you finally begin to realize that this life we're living in is more important than you, that's when you step into that third space and life not only becomes joyful because of the love of Christ, life becomes meaningful because of the call of Christ. Now I want to share a funny little thing that happens. First become a Christian, you, you have this sense, I'm a slave to God. I've, I've got to do all of these things. Even though you, know, you understand the gospel, you still don't understand all the implications of his love. So you're feeling this pressure. I've got to have Bible studies for him. I've got to go to church for him. I've got to do all of these things. And you're kind of a slave there. And then you usher into this new arena of being a son. You're free. Don't have to do anything because Jesus did it all. But then you actually decide I want to become a slave again. And when you read Paul's writing, how does he introduce himself? Paul, a bond slave of Jesus Christ. James, a bond slave of Jesus Christ. Peter, a bond slave of Jesus. All these guys view themselves as slaves and you go, where's the fun in that? I thought we were saved from slavery. Well, we're, we're saved when we get to know the love of Christ we get set free and when we get to know the love of Christ even more we want to go back to slavery. Now let me explain that from the Old Testament. In the Old Testament they had a kind of a funny law. Uh, If you were broke and you were in debt you would become a slave of the guy that you were in debt to. So let's say you worked for about seven years and you paid off your debt and now the owner comes to you and he says hey you are set free. You don't have to serve me anymore. But during these seven years, you've fallen in love with that owner. You've realized that no one who has ever loved you and cared for you like this owner has. And you look at the owner and say, I don't want to be free. I want to be your slave. So they had this funny little uh, ceremony. You'd go to the gates of the city and they would take an awl. Do you know what an awl is? It's a little pointy shaped thing. I'm really a tool time kind of guy. You can tell that, right? Uh, but anyway, an awl is like a screwdriver that instead of a head, at that, it's got a little pointy tip. So they'd take the awl and they'd put your ear right next to the gates of the city. Boom! they just pound right through the little thing, just like piercing your ears. And they'd put a hole in your ear and that was indicative that you were now, catch this, a slave by choice. You weren't a slave because you had to be a slave. You were a slave because you wanted to be a slave. And that's what happened to Paul and Barnabas and Peter and James and John and all of these guys. They realized they had been set free, but they said, Jesus, I'm going to serve you for the rest of my life. So they became bond slaves of Jesus Christ. Slaves by choice. The implications of this is amazing because what you do is you wake up and you say, not, what, not, you don't say, what do I want to do? Say, Lord Jesus, what's on your table for me today? What's on your plate? How, 
how do you want me to be at work today? How do you want me to be with my family? How do you want me to be with my friends, uh, at the, with the kids who are playing soccer? All of these different things. Lord Jesus, I want your agenda on a day-by-day, moment-by-moment basis. And that's, the excitement of that is that's when your life begins to make a greater and greater difference for the kingdom of God. So let's look at Paul. Uh, oh, let me, one more scripture, uh, Matthew six thirty-three. Jesus says, but seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. In other words, put that as number one on your agenda and all these things will be added to you. So, here's Paul's testimony in verses 15 through 18. He's going to share how this has played out in his life. But I have not made use of any of these rights, nor am I writing these things to secure any such provision. Paul says, I'm not saying this because I want you to start paying me. I want, I'm not saying this because I want you to start treating me with respect and calling me Dr. Paul or something like that. I'm saying this because I want to set an example for you about how you lay aside your rights for something more important. So Paul says, I would rather die than have anyone deprive me of my pr- ground for boasting. Now again, that sounds really weird, doesn't it? Paul's saying, oh, well, I don't want to get paid because then I couldn't brag about not being paid. That's not what he's saying at all. To understand this, you need to understand that the word for boasting and the word for glory is the same thing. What Paul is really saying is my glory, my, the fullness of who I am is that I've laid aside my rights, rights so that I can serve Jesus more fully. Now he's going to go on here. He's going to say some odd things. For if I preach the gospel, that gives me no ground for boasting. I, don't, I can't brag because I'm preaching to you. For necessity is laid upon me. You're going, what? what does he mean there? Hang with me here. Remember when Jesus called Paul into ministry? Did he ask him? Did he say to Ananias, would you go to Saul and say, uh, Saul, would you mind being my instrument for the Gentiles and Jews? And, and by the way, Saul, it's going to be suffering. Is, is it okay if you suffer a little bit for me? Jesus isn't doing that. He's saying, tell Saul that he will be my instrument. Tell Saul that he is going to suffer greatly for my name's sake. So Paul is saying, whoa, I didn't have any choice. I'm not preaching because I wanted to preach. I'm preaching because I had to preach. Now, when you see that, look at the next phrase. Paul says, woe is me if I don't preach the gospel. In other words, Paul says, if I don't preach the gospel, I'm going to explode. I have to preach. It's not even that I want to preach. It's that I have to preach. And the cool thing is we start applying this to us. I, I hope something is beginning to sink into you. You have the greatest news in the universe. Is that right or not? Is that right or not? Uh, It is right. I mean, it is amazing. We, We have found the light of the world. 
We have found the truth of God. We have found the wisdom of how to live our lives. And even more importantly, we have found the way to forgiveness of sins and the power of the Holy Spirit to be working through us. There is no better news. And so you walk over to your next door neighbor, hey, how's the fence coming? I wish you'd uh, trim your tree over there and, and keep things clean for me. All right, see you later. You go to work, hey, how are those widgets coming? You know, you... You're keeping up with the work? Good. And we talk as if we have no news. What if you met a person who was dying of cancer and you, you had just found out that research had discovered this amazing cure for the very specific kind of cancer and all you say is, oh, I'm sorry for your cancer. Hmm. Be warned to be filled. Hope you get better. Wouldn't you tell them? Wouldn't you be bursting inside to be able to act the greatest news for you? They found a cure for your very specific cancer and this is the doctor where you can find it. Well, we have the news that answers the greatest problem that every human being on this earth has and that's separation from God. And Paul is saying, I, can't, I couldn't keep silent if I wanted to. I couldn't shut up if I wanted to. That's what he means. Woe is me if I don't preach the gospel. Now, he goes on. For if I do this of my own will, I have a reward. In other words, if I volunteered, Paul said, Jesus would say, oh, that's really great, Paul. I'm really glad you're doing that. But he goes on to say, but if I do this against my will, ah, there we are. For if I do this not of my own will, I am still entrusted with a stewardship. What's a stewardship? A stewardship is something that is entrusted to you, not given to you, loaned to you for the purpose of your managing it to bless the owner of what you've been given. Okay, so like if you're a financial accountant and I entrust, you know, a million dollars, which I have right at my disposal, and I, so I entrust a million dollars to you, it's your job not to take that money and spend it and be blessed by my million. It's your job to invest it and multiply it so that you can return it to me greater than what I gave to you. That's what a steward does with the stewardship. I want you to write down, if you're taking notes, Matthew 25, 14 through 30. That's the parable of the talents. Remember Jesus, or the, the master gave five talents to one guy, four to the other, and one to the other. The owner didn't go, hey, is there anyone who would like to take care of my stuff while I'm gone? Calls the three servants. Hey, you're pretty good. I'm going to give you five talents. You're okay. I'm going to give you two talents. You're not so good. I'm just going to give you one. So, you know, he gives different guys different talents according to their abilities. He didn't ask them if they wanted to do anything. He expected them to take care of those investments until he came back and then to return it to him with interest. What Paul is trying to help us understand is the demand of the gospel is not optional. It's not if you're a normal Christian, live in the love of Christ and just enjoy life and, you know, you know ask the Holy Spirit to help you lose weight and, you know, ask the Holy Spirit to make you feel good and ask the Holy Spirit to bless your investments. Okay, oh, Holy Spirit, thank you for living according to my agenda. That's not, that's not Christianity. That's not our faith. 
He called us to follow him to make the disciples of all nations to be witnesses in every sphere of our life. And those aren't just for super Christians, that's for all followers of Jesus. So moving to this third space of, of living for him is not an option. Now, let's go on and read verse uh, 15, 18. Excuse me. What then is my reward? That in my preaching I may present the gospel free of charge so as not to make full use of my rights in the gospel. Do I have a right to sit home every week and watch TV? I guess I do in one sense. Um, am I missing the point of the gospel if I do that? I think I am. I don't want to run back to legalism and say, oh, you can only do this three nights a week and you've got to do this four nights a week. Anything, that's not what we're talking about. What we're talking about is being so overwhelmed by the gospel that it starts to change your use of time and your priorities and what you do. And Paul is saying, look, I have a right to be paid, but you know what? I figured out that it was going to get in the way of the gospel if I insisted on being paid. So forget it. I'm not going to be paid because I don't want anything to get in the way of the gospel. Next week, when we go into to, um, the last part of 1 Corinthians 9, we're, Matt is going to cover the most important passage of 1 Corinthians. It's 9.19 through the end of the chapter. And it is going to help you understand the implications of the gospel in your relationships and the passion with which Jesus wants you to pursue that implication. And what I'm praying right now is that number one, you're, you're kind of wondering where, you're gonna, where you are in your relationship with God right now. Maybe some of you are still in that, oh, stage one, I, I really I love being saved, but I feel like I need to earn God's love. Probably most of us are in kind of that second space, that, that space of really relaxing and enjoying the love of Christ, and ah, oh, this is great. But I want to share with you this morning that there's another place for you to go. And if you're in that second space, I want to give you some ideas as to what you need to do. Number one, it's time to grow up and embrace the incredible challenge of the gospel. I would encourage you to take these scriptures down that we've gone through. Philippians 1.21, Galatians 2.20, 2 Corinthians 5.14 and 15, and Matthew 6.33. And here's the question. How would your life change if you begin to implement those principles into your daily life? As an individual, what is the gospel agenda that Jesus has for you? And I want you to think about this. If you're a student, uh, the space of your sphere of influence is school. What is Jesus' agenda for you? How does he view the people that he's placed in your life? And how does he want you to view the people he's placed in your life? How about your team that you're playing on, your sports team, or whatever you're doing with life, how does Jesus want to come in 
and take over that space. Because that's exactly what he wants to do. He wants to take over. Second thing is to make sure that you know the gospel. You know, in the armor, the uh, armor of warfare that Ephesians 6 describes, uh, the third piece of armor is to put on the shoes of the preparation of the gospel of peace. And very simply, what that means is every day wake up getting ready to share the gospel if you had the opportunity. Have you ever had this happen where you stop and you're talking with a guy and that, that conversation has passed and you're walking over and you go, oh, that guy would have been interested in the gospel. I blew it. I missed the opportunity. It happened to me all the time when I was young. I just, I would, I didn't realize it was an opportunity until the opportunity was passed and then it was too late. The reason we miss those opportunities is we're not looking for them. And I always used to wonder, how, does other, how do other people have so many opportunities and I seem to never have any? Guess what? They were looking. I had a, a, a guy who was kind of a mentor to me. He was a pastor and he actually moved his office out of the church and into a business complex so that he could share Christ with people in the business complex. And within six months, he had a group of 20 non-Christians all coming weekly to a Bible study. People are more ready to hear the gospel than we are to share the gospel. Let me repeat that. People are more ready to hear the gospel than we are to share the gospel. We bought into this line from the media that nobody wants to hear the gospel. Guess what? A lot of people out there who do. And the only reason you find out, the only way you find out is by opening your mouth. All right, third thing is be strategic. Make a list of those people. Begin to pray for them. All right, how about as a family? How can you strategically use your resources and relationships to further the gospel? Let me give you a suggestion. Set aside first maybe one night a week. Once you do it, I think you'll expend it too. It's kind of fun. Just find a neighbor and invite them over for dinner. Now, you don't have to have a flip chart of the gospel on the wall, you know, <laughs> point one, point two, point three. You don't have to, you don't have to be weird or ridiculous about it. You just start loving them. In fact, this friend of mine who moved into the office complex, his famous cliche, and I loved it, he said, love them until they ask you why. Now think about it. Love them until they ask you why. And you don't just love them with hugs and words, but you love them with truth and with, with your actions. And so maybe you just start once a week inviting a different neighbor over and just seeing who seems to be open to this stuff. And then you just continue to develop relationships with them. Think of what that would speak to your kids about. Make sure uh, open your home. Okay, we talked about that. The other thing is to go on short-term mission trips as a family so that you catch that missional fever. My dad set a great example. When we were young, uh, we would all go down to Mexico with this organization called Yugo, Youth Unlimited Gospel Outreach. And we would, uh, we'd spend our Easter's there and we'd spend our Thanksgiving there. We did that for about 10 years. And the impact on our lives, well, my two brothers went out as missionaries, one to Guatemala, one to Costa Rica, and my other brother invested the last part of his life in India. 
the, it's just amazing how that week-long trip and then that four-day trip just influenced our whole family culture. So if you're a couple, figure out a place, you, rather than going on vacation, go on a mission trip. Uh, go with Johnny and friends to minister to those with special needs. I mean, you will not believe how that will transform your life. I've seen it in my grandson. I've seen it in so many lives that people, people have been there and their lives have just been changed just by serving Christ. How about as a, a um, community group? What if you begin to hold each other accountable for living out the gospel? Not in a head, bat over the head way, but just in a, a loving way to say, hey, how can we learn to live the gospel? And let's pray for each other and let's talk to each other about how we're doing that and make that a regular part of your community group. There, there's so many ways, but here's the point. Moving in this space is moving to the point where you are not the focus. Jesus Christ, his gospel and his kingdom is the focus of your life. And your resources get directed in that direction, your time gets put in that direction, and your prayer and your passion gets put in that direction. And I want to tell you something. I, I marvel at myself sometimes. What I marvel at is how stinking old I am. I'm 68 years old. Yeah. When I was 14, I thought 40 was the end. You know, I thought, you know, if you hit 40, you're going to die within 12 to 18 months. I mean, it was, and now I'm 68. That is stinking old, you know? It, it's amazing. But all through my life, I found that I more, the more that I move towards Jesus, the more filled with his joy that I am. The more that I embrace his mission rather than my mission, the more exciting life gets. So it may seem like you're losing, oh my gosh, I want to win the lottery. That's really my passion in life. Or I want to I uh, be able to fly first class when I fly. I want to do this and I want to do, do all of these cool things. And, and you discover they don't really mean as, mu mean as much as you thought they would. And what you discover is the stuff you do with Jesus Christ is the stuff that truly satisfies. So we're going to close our time with a, a, a period of worship. Uh, we're going to have the worship team come up. As they do, I want to let you know how we close our services. If you're new, you'll discover there's a whole lot of movement going around. Uh, people are coming up to take communion. The offering buckets are up here to share there. And there are members of the prayer team on each side. And what I would love to encourage you to do is for each of you, if you're praying during communion or if you want to have somebody pray for you, focus on this question. What is the next step that Jesus wants me to take in my journey of growing towards him? Simple question. What is, what is one thing I can do this week that is going to move me forward in that journey of growing towards him? Father in heaven, I just pray that you'd excite us about going whole on with you. Not letting anything get in the way of our passion to serve you and love you and enjoy your love. And Father, I just pray that as we worship you, you would be speaking into our lives, loving us with all that you have to love. And may we respond to that love by saying, 
I want to serve you for the rest of my life. In Jesus' name, amen.